Welcome to Kanza Radio, a weekly update on the people, events, activities, and initiatives of the Kahn Nation, people of the South Wind, on 1230 WBBZ and 1047 The Bull. Now from the Kahn Nation studios, this week's edition of Kanza Radio. Sitting down with us again today is the OSU Community Wellness Team. We have Marcy Antonio, the K County Grant Coordinator for Alcohol. We have Cherie Michelle Hansen Brewer, K County Grant Coordinator for Marijuana. We have Jamila Al Haraki, the K County Grant Coordinator for Stimulants, and the Fearless Leader, the Grants Manager, Chuck Lester. Full house today. How's everybody doing? Good, Lonnie. Good, good. Thank, you. Thank you for coming in. So, yeah, this is our third time sitting down together. The original plan was to kind of do a series of these. So we're making beautiful progress. It's been quite the journey. I personally have been learning so much about your process, all the things you guys do in the community, all the good work that you're doing, the ways that you help our community, not only to inform, but to ultimately help mitigate and prevent the dangers and damage associated with these various types of substance abuse I'm also very grateful. I feel honored that you guys kind of have been so inclusive in bringing me along the journey. You've invited me to these health coalition monthly meetings. You invite me to all the different events. And most importantly, you guys have done a really good job of being very mindful in your efforts to help our Native American community within the greater community. Most remarkably, your efforts to help the Kaw Nation and our tribal citizens. We've been brainstorming different ways that we can approach that and I think that's very valuable, and I'm very grateful for that. Marcy, the grant coordinator for alcohol abuse, education, and prevention, you have very strong Native roots, and you're actually the catalyst to that. You're, you're the one that reached out to me originally. You, you kind of created this relationship, and I also thank you so much. You're a, you're a member of the Apache tribe out of Arizona, and I know that a lot of your passion to do this kind of comes from your Native roots. Have you been making good progress kind of connecting with other tribes in the area? Yeah, it's a slow work in progress, which is no problem at all. You know, I kind of like to work at the pace of the programs that I'm working with, and and it's no rush for me because I, I totally understand building that relationship is more important to me than to go out and, you know, to just just take action of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to you don't want to be a bull in a china shop, you know, kind of good things come to those who wait. Yes, definitely. So, um, fostering those relationships. Luckily, I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I'm I'm the latter version of that. So I was excited. <laughs> I wanted to just yeah. come right out of the gates and jump into this with you guys. Something that we spoke about. I kind of sat down with you and Chuck last week. We were kind of game planning different ideas, not only how to help the Kaw Nation tribal citizens, but you brought to my attention somebody uh, by the name of Doctor Kamara yeah. Jones. A very interesting person. Seems like a very renowned um, professor, PhD dealing a lot with, you know, social inequality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Across. She's really kind of a groundbreaker in some of the concepts that she's laid out. And, and one of the things that I think is great about Dr. Jones' work is she uses allegory heavily. So it, it's really good in the sense of even the sort of crossover that we find with our Native populations, she uses stories to illustrate her concepts and to really drive home those concepts in a way that makes it easily accessible. That's allegory. Yes. Uh, yeah. Kind of the metaphors that, that lie under these stories. Absolutely. So you tell a story and it has a bigger either moral meaning or a sort of conceptual meaning. And she's great at being able to put together these sort of scenarios and stories that are they're engaging stories to begin with, and then they make you think on the back end about how they apply to the world around us. Absolutely. One, one of those stories that you brought to my attention, The Gardener's Tale. Yes. 
Very interesting story. Very powerfully metaphoric, especially when observing the demographic challenges that the different people face, whether it's racism. Um, we were speaking about gender specifically within the Native American population. Some of the challenges that a lot of the males face as well as the females. And, you know, some of the damaging byproducts that result in, in substance abuse that come from that. So the gardener's tale, it's essentially about two flower boxes, one that has poor soil, the other that has very rich, fertile soil. And the gardener has two packages of seeds. It's essentially the same flower, but their blossoms are two different colors. One's red, one's pink. The gardener personally prefers the color red. So she's obviously going to plant those seeds in the rich, fertile soil, leaving the pink seeds for the less favorable, rocky, not, not as rich soil. And it kind of unfolds how you'd imagine. You know, amongst the pink, the weakest flowers don't even make it. The strongest flowers only grow to medium height, while the red flowers, they grow very tall and strong, even with the weakest reaching that same middle height. As the flowers produce seeds in their respective boxes, future generations experience the same struggles, almost like a, a cycle. And what's funny is years later, upon observing the flowers, the gardener kind of reflects and says, you know what, I was right to prefer red. Look at how, how much these red flowers are, are flourishing and thriving compared to the, the pink flowers. Now, just kind of going a quick, a quick snapshot of that story, I'm sure that brings to mind so many different metaphors and ways that that can relate to um, the issue of social inequality, whether it be race or any of these, these other factors. Something that really stuck out to me was the whole factor of self-identity. Because at one point in the story, the, the pink flowers quoted by saying to the bee, oh, don't pollinate me with the, with, the, with the pink pollen. I don't want that pink pollen. It's no good when it's the pink flower. So it, it almost embeds this negative self-identity as, as the generations proceed. And that's something that really stuck out to me, something that I think can have a huge impact on people that are impoverished when it comes to how you perceive yourself. And that's obviously not a, not a good thing. This kind of lends itself to a study that I found that was brought to my attention recently. I shared it with you guys. It's conducted by um, the Endangered Language Fund, and it's essentially called The Health Effects of Indigenous Language Use and Revitalization, a Realist's Review. It essentially reviews 130 native languages with one simple question in mind. Is native language acquisition beneficial to health? It turns out the answer is a resounding yes. A conclusive majority of the studies reviewed found that learning and speaking one's native language, regardless of proficiency level, this isn't, hey, you have to be able to speak it A to Z right out of the gate. Just if you're going through the motions of trying to revitalize your language, learn your native language, it has a number of not only physical but mental health benefits. And a lot of the categories that they covered this study are very fundamental, very, um, you know, at the core of well-being. You've got things like you know, happiness, identity, quality of life, academic achievement, alcohol abuse, smoking cigarettes, illicit drugs, things like suicide, risky behaviors, anxiety. It kind of covers the gambit. And the majority of these tested well, like this language factor is helping with all of them. something that kind of came to mind with me is, is it the chicken or the egg? Are the, are the people that are going above and beyond and, and proactively trying to participate in their language, also the same people that are going to excel in school are going to be more mentally healthy. Now, 
I think that it goes both ways. I think that it lends itself back to this self identity piece where, you know what, B, I want you to pollinate me with the pink pollen. I don't think it's bad. I'm proud of that. Yeah, there's there's kind of a lot going on there, right? So first of all, with with her tale, right, when we think of disparities and we think of populations that are experiencing these, there are lots of different structures, and that's why she tells the, the story like she does. There's the original insult, and that's what most people think of with disparity, where the gardener is personally mediating the difference. So they have a strong preference. They believe in their heart that the red flowers are better than the pink. And so they are doing something either very actively and consciously, or sometimes if you want to give somebody some grace subconsciously, but there's a preference, there's a bias there. And that's sort of the one that we usually get stuck on and think of, but then the idea of the different soils, and that's really what we try and do in our work is look at the environment that produces a behavior or the environment that produces an individual. Because like you said, in rocky soil, how good could any of us do? It doesn't matter where we're, you know, how individually special we are. If we're planted in rocky soil or if you scale that up to the idea of a population level, if you're in an environment that's really pretty tough, you're going to have a hard time flourishing. So what, what a lot of our work with substance abuse does is instead of trying to go to the individual and fix the individual, mm-hmm. we're trying to look at the, the sort of population, the environment, and see what are the drivers of the behavior that we can maybe fix so that it's not just fixing it for one person, but that everything in the box can grow, right? If you go back to the idea of, of the gardener's tale, mm-hmm. the personally mediated racism or bias the systemic one, which is what we're hopefully trying to fix. And then as you've landed on, which is such a powerful piece with, with the language is that idea of the sort of internalized disparity or the internalized bias. And the reason I, I think you've hit on it. It is a two way street. So sure. Your high sort of people who may have aptitude naturally are going to flourish because they're learning a skill, but really what, this is about is from a, from a personally mediated or sort of internalized viewpoint, it's a connection. The power of connection is vitally, vitally important. And we see this in research all over the place. And when I say it, not just in our sort of daily lives, we know families and those kinds of things, but there's some really powerful research about feeling connected to a school or your tribe, or your whatever, and if a youth can say that they feel strongly connected, they are insulated against all kinds of substance abuse issues, um, suicide, mental health problems, because they see themselves as part of something bigger mm-hmm. that they can be proud of. Um, if we think about, again, the, the sort of environment that produces this, when you've seen your whole life these negative stereotypes... And that becomes internalized. One of the ways that you can start to heal some of that historical trauma is exactly what you just said. Like, sure, you see that maybe we haven't flourished as much, but look how resilient we are. Look how in the face of all these different challenges, we've been able to scratch out a living and make it work. We are important and we are something to be proud of and learning your native language and and feeling part of that connection back to where you came from and understanding that is absolutely protective. I mean, the, the study that you've got in front of us shows it everything that we've seen with school connectedness and and those kinds of things show it. So these, these language 
programs can be a vital piece of trying to take care of all sorts of, of public health measures. And it has the dual positive effect of carrying forward the, the culture in a positive way of maybe trying to break down those boxes or to try and add some soil back into that box so that it makes those flowers be able to grow taller. It's interesting that you mentioned that you kind of address it from multiple angles and that kind of lends itself back to how powerfully metaphoric the story is where a lot of your focus with what you guys do focuses on the environments that produce behaviors, essentially the soil. But then, you know, after generations, once the damage is done, how do we heal? So not only do we want to address the environment itself, but how do we retrospectively correct some of those things, heal some of those things? And that's you know, like you said, the connectedness, feeling connected to a school, feeling connected to your tribe, feeling connected to something that's bigger is going to insulate you. It's going to essentially promote more healthy behaviors. The healthy behavior of connecting to your tribe, learning the language is going to, if, if nothing other than subconsciously, help you make healthier decisions in the face of, you know, you see people drinking, you see people smoking cigarettes. You just kind of naturally and obviously statistically avoid that. So I'm really happy we found this. I'm really happy I came across this language piece. I know that Storm Brave, our language director, is very engaged with this, and she's exploring this further and seeing how it can, you know, continue to help our youth and help future generations. And I think a lot of that is encouraging teachers to and parents to get more people involved in this. I know that we have a pretty strong presence in our language program, but I guarantee that there could be monumentally more people involved in this. I know that we have tribal members across the country, not just in this region. I know that the majority of our language program involves people in the local service area. So there's all sorts of approaches, all sorts of ways that we can involve more people. And I think a lot of that comes down to technology. How do we make these resources available to everybody? Marcia, you were mentioning some very incredible things that your your tribe Apache is doing, specifically with your branch of the Apache language I believe there's an app, and um, like Chuck was saying, this app is done very well. It's not just a it's not just a dictionary that you pull up and find the word and, and learn it slowly. That way, it actually gamifies the process of learning. It categorizes the language on this app into all sorts of different aspects from food, from animals. And as you continue to get basically up to 100% in that category, you move on to. I believe it gets a lot more detailed to where. There's different aspects of a conversation, whether you're talking about this, talking about that, you get to continue to get up to 100% and make progress. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you know um, about kind of who developed that and, and how that came to be. Yeah, so I am a member of the St. Carlos Apache tribe in St. Carlos, Arizona, and there was a student from the University of California that came out to our tribe, and he had a lot of interest in the Apache language. And he really reached out to our local college there, the St. Carlos Apache College, and he spoke with our chairman and asked them, what can I do to get more involved with the language? How can I learn Apache? Because, you know, he, he had a lot of interest in our tribe. Mm -hmm. So when he finally noticed that there wasn't any book that he could read or there wasn't really like for all the dialects from, from our reservation, because there's about maybe six different dialects of Apache from my reservation. He wanted to develop something to where he could learn different dialects through apps. Because with the youth, that, that was one of the things with our reservation. The youth didn't really know our language very well. 
they knew some words but couldn't carry on a conversation. So he kind of took it upon himself to work with the native elders from our reservation and with the chairman and all the families to try and develop something for the youth to learn the language in a fun way. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is how the app was developed. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of youth today still use it. And I know my family uses it. We have a lot of fun playing with it, having conversations with each other. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. It's, that's very remarkable. That speaks to a lot of things. The, the main thing that stands out to me is your tribe's ability to come together. Like you, like you said, the families, the council, different members like that, they all came together and worked with this gentleman who was able to create that app and produce something that everybody's happy with and actively uses. And it's done in such a genius way because how do you get in front of the youth? How do you get the youth's attention? You, you, you put yourself on that screen that they're always staring at, right? Yeah. You, you make an app. Yeah. And that is so incredible that everybody came together, not only culturally, but government wise and tech technologically. And I think that we could definitely, as the car nation, take a chapter out of that and try to pursue something similar. So I'm excited about speaking with you further, working with you, connecting you with our, our language director, Storm Brave, and seeing if there's similar steps we could take or people that we could put us in touch with to try to get something like that going. We have some very good resources on our website, connation.gov. We have under our culture tab, we have a language page. We have a lot of resources, a lot of documents that can get you along the way. I know a lot of them are used in our various classes and programs like that. I encourage everybody to look at that, learn more about that, especially our tribal citizens. But most importantly, I'm hoping to get the attention of tribal parents and get more people involved, not only because we need to keep the culture alive, we need to keep the language alive, but as this study conducted by the Endangered Language Fund shows, there are immense health and mental benefits that come from something like this. Now, in terms of different ways that we can get this study out there, help more people, help more tribes, help more children, it's hard to tell. We're doing our best, but... A lot of that comes down to having actual data, things, things that show us exactly how to move forward, directions to go with this. And that reminds me of a recent development that you guys, OSU Community Wellness, have just made with um, the OPNA. It's a study. What does the OPNA stand for again? It's the Oklahoma Prevention Needs Assessment. Okay. So it's uh, done every other year. It, it's a survey that's delivered to Oklahoma 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. And it's had kind of a long history. We, we developed it because we realized at some point we just didn't have – there are some national surveys. So there's a thing called the Burfus and NASDA. They all have these sort of alphabet soup names. But we didn't have a lot of good local state data on what our youth were, were doing and how they felt about substance use, were they using, when did they start, those kinds of things. So it was developed really out of just studying what some other states had done. I know the state of Washington had a really good developed one. And for a long time, it was part of our job to go around to individual schools. So we'd try and set up a meeting with the superintendent and get them to take this on. And it's about 150 questions. So it's relatively intense. And there are times where sometimes it's, I guess I want to say that it's easier not to know you have a problem. So there was sometimes some pushback. 
there are, we know that our schools are super heavily scheduled. And so it can be just tough to find time to do it and resources to do it. Sometimes we didn't necessarily want to know we have a problem, but we didn't always get great sample sizes, right? At the end of the day, and it's one of the reasons this is such a good study, you want to be able to look at how your your data comes to you and what the sample size is like and what the questions are like so that you know that it's good because you can make some really... <laughs> horrible decisions based off of bad. Yeah. Right. So, um, we knew that we didn't always have great sample sizes, but we kept kind of plugging away and trying to increase enrollment. And eventually it's gotten to the point where we've seen enough positive benefits from what we were able to do that the the legislature made it mandatory for schools to take it. So this very next round, which I think comes up this school year, is the first year where every school in Oklahoma will take this thing. So our sample size will be bulletproof. Like every school we're going to hear from, we know that from a, like a connation standpoint, all of our youth are in schools in K County and sort of the surrounding area. We're also going to try and make sure that we're pulling native numbers specifically out of that so that we can see some of those pieces as well. But we're going to have really, really good numbers and data to work with. I like that. Yeah. You mentioned um, getting data is not always a good thing if, if not collected correctly. Absolutely. A lot of it comes to sample size, seeing how it serves as a roadmap on how to move forward if you're not getting accurate data, if you're getting misleading stuff, you might be, it might be doing as much damage as it could potentially do good. So that's amazing that this became mandatory. Is this across all counties? Yep. Every, every single school in the state, public schools anyway, will, will have to take this. And uh, again, we should be able to get the, the great thing about everybody taking it as well. So originally, if we could get up to a certain sample size that they knew was valid, then you could make some cross comparisons. So we could look at different counties that might be similar, or we could look at even different maybe school districts that were similar and go, well, we're doing pretty well comparatively. But like you just said, if you don't have good data to begin with, then you can't always make those comparisons accurately for sure. And, And you just shouldn't do it unless you know you've got a good sample to be able to do it. But, but this time around, we'll be able to do some of that um, and really should also then be able to see trend data from here on that will be good. I know that alcohol is a huge issue amongst the Native community. I imagine that it's an issue amongst the county as a whole. Sometimes I'll, I'll go to different news sites and you'll see the, the different arrest reports, that kind of thing, and so much of it is DUI, that sort of thing. So sounds to me like it's quite obvious that there's a need for that. Marijuana, you see dispensaries everywhere. I come from Nevada where it's legalized. I moved here about a year and a half ago. And the amount of dispensaries isn't even a fraction of what you see if you just drive around Ponca City, which I always found interesting because I believe it's only medicinally legalized in Oklahoma. So how there are so many more dispensaries. Yes. I'd be interested to learn more about how there are so many more dispensaries when it's only medicinal. So that's, that's a huge issue as well. Jamila, I wanted to kind of ask you because you're, you're more involved with the stimulant side of things. I imagine that involves like a meth. Are you noticing that that's a a rather large problem in the K County area? Um, can you fill us in a little bit on, on your journey so far with your grant? Um, yeah, unfortunately, it is. Um, there is high amounts of illicit stimulant use in K County, and but not just in K County. I mean, Oklahoma in general has 
had a, a problem for a long time with meth, particularly it's highly addictive and it's one of the hardest drugs to wean yourself off of. So once you get involved with it, um, it it's definitely a challenge to, to work through your substance use disorder. So. I, I have personal um, experience with, with family members have gone down that road in a huge way, but it was always very, very confusing to me because if I'm correct, there you have your different types of illicit drugs that are what's referred to as like physically addictive, meaning there's a withdrawal process, you get sick, it's really hard to get off of. I don't recall that methamphetamines is one of those, yet it is, it's addictive in ways that aren't just, I'm going to be sick if I don't do this. It's, it's almost like there's a mental aspect. Yeah, and you know what I've learned from people who have dealt with um, meth addictions or um, substance use disorders it's very numbing to trauma, for example. Um, a lot I've just spoken with some people who are now, you know, have dealt with it in their past and they've now, you know, not using anymore. And one of the common factors I always hear is just that it's very numbing to whatever experience they've had in life that they're trying to get rid of. So there is definitely a strong like psychological component that affects that a meth affects and it keeps people using. One of the other things that's so important, I think, that we talk about a lot in our, as our team is that it's not necessarily someone wakes up and begins using meth. It's often a, a drug that's used after, you know, gateways from other drugs have come that people have used in the past, uh, initially. So mm. it doesn't ever just start one day where you wake up and you begin using meth. It's usually like a progression Usually something like alcohol opens up to marijuana, opens up to meth. Just to address your points biologically, so the one of the things about especially illicit methamphetamine is it causes such an intense dump of neurotransmitters, so the chemicals in your brain that cause feel good and whatever that you, it drives depression. Once you've had that high, number one, it can really short circuit that system. So the system stops producing things naturally and waits for the, the bump from the methamphetamine to produce it. So when you come off of it, you're not drug sick in the same way that somebody who has a heroin addiction is physically dependent on the substance, but you are, the depression is, is absolutely like sw it swallows you unless you have more of the substance it, it becomes almost impossible. And even years after they get off it, it can take that system in the brain a long time to sort of redevelop itself and be able to provide net. So you just don't feel anything. And that's a really horrible experience. It's almost like the, the mental part of it could be more dangerous than, you know, a physical addiction. It's almost a, a mental addiction and, and what ultimately controls our behavior. Right. So I personally have seen it to be a very, a very damaging, very traumatizing thing for me and my immediate family. And I'm just grateful to see that there are resources like this out here, preventing it, working to mitigate it, working to inform the community. Speaking of informing the community, I believe you guys have another event coming up. This one is a free parent education night. Can you tell us a little bit about this? One of the protective factors is parents and guardians. And so they're a real important piece for starting a conversation with children. And a protective factor is also youth and that beginning process before trying the different drugs and substances. 
Previously, we had a couple other uh, educational events for marijuana and stimulants. And in the community, it started a conversation. And so we are now one of our coalition members from the Community Health Foundation is sponsoring this event. And it is geared toward parents and guardians. And it will be about vaping and it will also have a piece for marijuana. Currently, one in four Oklahoma youth are using vapes and with nicotine and marijuana. So this event will be to educate parents so they can begin that conversation with their youth that they are working with. There's going to be some incentives as well. Refreshments, three $100 Walmart gift card. That's door prizes. You don't have to buy a raffle ticket or anything like that. If I could only uh, duplicate myself two more times, all three of us would go. I would try to get all three of those. (laughs) August 8th, it's coming up. It's going to be at the Pioneer Technology Center from 6.30 to 9 p.m. You're going to have Andrew Pearson and Chief Don Bohan. Am I saying those names right? Correct. And we look forward to seeing everybody there. I know that you guys have been growing more and more with your events that you're throwing. So I imagine it will be a packed house. Thank you guys so much, Marcy, Cherie, Jamila, Chuck. You guys are amazing. This has been an incredible show. Let's do this again very soon, and let's uh, keep fighting the good fight here. Thanks, Lonnie. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Kanza Radio, a weekly update on the people, events, activities, and services of the Kaw Nation. For more information, visit our website at kawnation.com or Kaw Nation on Facebook. Listen again next week at this same time for another edition of Kanza Radio.